Welcome everyone to another episode of The Hobby. Today I am joined by my friend in Cardboard Veritas on Instagram, uh, also known as Nate. Nate, uh, we're grateful to have you on. It's a, it's a time that uh, nobody wants to be able to talk, nobody wants to be talking about some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. Um, we lost one of the great pioneers in the history of, of basketball, uh, a great man and a, and, a, and a great player and somebody who I know a lot of us uh, not only collect, but hold a certain reverence for, and that's Bill Russell. We lost him earlier uh, last week and, and uh, just we're, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you about, about the life of Bill Russell and about some of his accomplishments. But uh, first off, really just want to ask you, what, what were your first thoughts as you heard, uh, as you heard about Bill Russell's passing? Sure. Uh, you know, I, obviously, you know, you, you feel sadness in that moment. I actually found out at a, at a really interesting time. I was at the National Card Show uh, this past weekend, and, um, you know, news of his passing started to, to emerge, I think it was around noon on Sunday, the last day of the show. And so I, I found out, actually, just as my son and I were, were leaving the show, just moments before we left. So, it was kind of, you know, already a time where we had, you know, sort of spent the weekend being around fellow sports fans and card collectors and, you know, had a little bit of sadness that that was over and then and then heard that news. And, you know, it was, it was uh, you know, first reactions, of course, are sadness. And, you know, my son and I spent spent a lot of time talking about it. And even for someone, you know, like like Bill Russell at age 88, when you hear that news, it's, it's still just hard to believe, you know, he's, he's always been with us for as long as you and I have been alive, probably combined. And, um, <laughs> you know, so, it, you know, you, you just start to process it and, you know, um, and, you know, so at, over time, you know, you move from sadness to kind of celebrating who he was and, and what he represented. Um, and, you know, it's, it's been a lot of that over the last few days. Yeah, and that's really what we're here to do today, too, I think, is to talk about, um, you know, not not just, you know, how sad it is, but mostly, let's talk about Bill Russell. Let's talk about why he's important to our history, why he's important to the history of the NBA, and and also, you know, talk about, this is a card podcast. Um, let's talk about, um, from a perspective of collectors, you know, what, what, why he's been important in the, in the world of cardboard. Um, you know, when I, when I thought about who I wanted to interview for this, you were the first person who I thought about. And the reason that I thought about you is that early on in basketball card fanatics history, we were looking for different people to write different vintage pieces. And you and I got talking and it was very early on. I think it was, I think it was issue four, or issue five. And you wanted to write a piece about, about Bill Russell and you volunteered for it. And a couple of weeks later, you sent me this, this document that was really awesome. I mean, it wasn't, we get a lot of different, a lot of different people write a lot of different things for BCF, um, but yours was well thought out. It was long and it covered not only uh, Russell's playing days, but also some of the things that he's accomplished post his career. And so, you know, with that, with that backdrop, that's why I was interested in having, having you back on. So with that, with all that said, let's start by talking about a little bit about who Bill Russell was on the court. Um, when I, when I say his name and we think about what he did during, during his career and what, what first comes to your mind? 
Yeah. So, uh, right. He, he's part of, um, and, and he's probably the earliest player that remains part of these great debates that we have as sports and basketball fans, right? He came into the league. The Pantheon. The Pantheon. Yeah, he's in the Pantheon for sure. He's in everyone's top 10. He's squarely in my top 10 players of all time um, and, and probably a fair bit higher than that. So, you know, I just, I, I look at his career and, you know, some of the things that, that stand out to me are um, obviously the winning. You know, I mean, that's, that's the main thing. He has 11 rings. And, you know, one of the things there is people say, well, it was a lot easier back then. But, you know, ask Wilt if it was easy. I think he had two or Jerry West or Oscar Robertson. I think they each had one or Elgin Baylor, who never won one. Never won one. Those, those four icons of the game combined for four. And Bill Russell had 11. So, you know, it, it wasn't that easy. You know, and and one of the reasons it was so hard for those guys is they kept running into Russell and and it wasn't easy for him either. It's you know, it's not like the Celtics were, you know, far and away the best team that they put together a tremendous dynasty, but they played a lot of game sevens and, you know, they they lost their share of games. But he was a guy that always found a way and they never won before he got there. So, you know, it's just, it's amazing. You have to start with the winning and talk about that and then move on from there, I think. So you mentioned game sevens. I saw this stat on Twitter as people have been reminiscing about him and it was how many game sevens Russell played in, how many of them he lost. He played in, I believe the answer was 10 over the course of his career. I remember for sure the number that he lost, the number zero. He didn't lose in game sevens, but not only was it, you know, game sevens that he didn't lose in, he didn't lose in any deciding games back in high school, back in college. You take all, we take Russell all the way through his entire basketball playing career. And he played in something like 20 elimination games. He never lost any. He just won every time he had to. And, and I think, you know, I think you're exactly right that what people do is they look and they say, Oh, it was a smaller league. There were few, there are fewer teams. That's true. Mm -hmm. And Oh, Russell played with a lot of great players and that's true. He played with several hall of famers, but 11, like 11 rings. You think like that's, it's over a decade of just winning 11 out of 13 years, the guy won. So, you know, I feel like, I feel like it's such a staggering stat that people almost ignore it because it's not something that we can sort of conceive of. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Yep. Right. And then, you know, you look beyond that at, you know, I think he won five MVP awards, which is just behind MJ and Kareem, who each have six. And there was not a finals MVP award at the time. It's now named for him, uh, fittingly, because I think I've heard estimated that he probably would have won at least eight or maybe nine finals MVPs if that had existed at the time. And so, you look at combined finals and regular season MVPs and you, he'd probably have a number that's around 13, 14, 15, somewhere in there. Um, and that's, that's a number that people sometimes use to measure the greatness of an NBA career, right? And MJ's number is 11. He has five regular season and six postseason. You know, Russell would have been around 14. LeBron and, and Kareem are next to eight total regular season and finals. So, you know, I mean, by that measure, he was, you know, fairly clearly the best, you know, so you look at titles, you look at combined MVPs. One, one of the other really interesting things that I like is um, the 1962 season was a really interesting MVP race year. That was the year that um, 
that Wilt averaged over 50. He scored 100 in a game that was in 62. Also in 1962, Oscar became Oscar Robertson became the first player to average a triple double, but the MVP that year was Bill Russell, right? And and it and the voting wasn't close, and the players voted. Like I think you know most of the players in the league at that time. And so, you know, you look at how good was he? What, what did his peers think of him? And Wilt's best season and Oscar's triple-double season, <laughs> season, Bill was the MVP. <laughs> Man, I, I, that's just a great stat. I love that. I don't want you to list, I don't want you to name your list, but you mentioned earlier that he's high up on your, on your top 10. Can you tell us where you have him in the top 10 without, without sort of listing off the rest of it? Right. Um, you know, for me, I, it's, uh, I typically have them, I think around four or five ish, so okay. somewhere right in that range. Yeah. yeah. I have him, I'll tell you, I have him at third. And mm-hmm. I think though, that anywhere in that second to two to five or six range, I think all of those, those are, are really like easy to argue. What isn't okay with me is when people look at his career and they say, uh, it doesn't matter. He's, he's older. I'm going to put him, you know, a, a lot lower. I think people think that in the 1950s, um, you know, in the early 60s, th- these guys were playing, you know, just this big man basketball where they were all lumbering. Go watch Bill Russell play. Go, there's not like great video out there, but watch him like jump, watch him run, watch him dribble with the ball. This was a, a man who was not just like a lumbering stand in the center and score guy although he was one of the leading rebounders of all time and, and, you know, and scored a fair amount as well. Like he was a guy who, who, who did other things on the court. He was athletic. He was extremely athletic and extremely long and, um, you know, would be toward the top of the all-time list and block shots today if, if, sure. they, if they had tracked those things. So um, I think sometimes when things are out of our mind, when we, when we're not educated, educated on them, we, we don't focus on them. We, maybe we don't understand them as well, but that's part of the reason for this um, episode of the hobby is to also sort of educate um, those listeners who maybe, maybe don't know as much about the life and the career of Bill Russell. Um, speaking about the life of Bill Russell, for however successful he was on the court, I think some people would argue that, that what he did off the court um, in terms of civil rights and, and other things, th- those were maybe just as impactful. Um, you t- you wrote about some of these things in in your article, um, and we've talked about some of them. But when you think about what what Russell did for the world outside of the game of basketball, what are what are some of the things that come to your mind? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, I I, I view him really as kind of the the ultimate dignitary. In, in the game of basketball and, and really one of the, the ultimate dignitaries in, in sports, really in, in sports history. Um, you know, just the combination of, of what he was able to accomplish on the court and, and off the court is, is really, really remarkable and really unique. Um, you know, so looking, looking off the court, uh, you know, he was, he was a very, influential figure in in the civil rights movement um you know is obviously one of the things that that comes immediately to mind he was he was one of the early black players in the league and you know it wasn't I, I think he was you know somewhere in the range of maybe the 12th or 13th um black player in the league first black superstar first um black head coach and hall of fame inductee you know i mean he he kind of broke all these 
barriers as as he was coming up and establishing his superstardom and and his dominance in the game um and you know so so he was you know kind of a pioneer in in the game and in sports in that regard and then off the court um you know he was he was marching beside uh you know dr king in in civil rights marches he was um standing with muhammad ali in his you know some of the very important and influential stands that he was taking in in the civil rights movement um bill russell also you know he um famously uh, there was a game I can't recall what year it was, but it was fairly early in his career. I want to say around 1960 or 1961. And they were going to play an exhibition game in Kentucky. And there was a restaurant there that refused to serve a couple of his teammates, including Sam Jones for, for, you know, based on, on their race. And um, in response to that, Russell led a boycott of that game and, you know, they, they didn't end up playing. And, you know, you think, you think, sort of reverberations forward. We saw that, you know, not too long ago in the wake of what happened to George Floyd and, you know, some of the decisions that players made in the NBA. And you think about making those decisions 60 years earlier when, when things were very different and the difficulty in making those kind of decisions. And, you know, you hear the, the phrase, be the change that you want to see in the world. And I, I think he's someone that very, very fully stands for, for that type of principle. Uh, that's a great, a great story to tell and a great, I think, conclusion and lesson to draw. Um, I know that there's a story about him and his, his Hall of Fame induction that, that is well known, but it doesn't, doesn't really immediately come to my mind right now. Do you know what I'm referring to? Well, you know, one thing that, that comes to mind for me is when his number was retired in Boston, that he, he didn't attend the ceremony. He famously is that yeah um, right yeah he had a very strained relationship and and kind of view of the city of Boston you know he endured a lot of racism during his career and and also you know kind of I think felt a little slighted by the city for for what he had accomplished there and the I think I think he felt like he didn't maybe get the full level of respect and credit that he deserved for for what he had done. Um, so yeah, they of all things, can you imagine having a, a, a number retirement ceremony with the recipient of that ceremony refusing to attend? So yeah, that that was what he did, you know, on, on principle there, and in large part as a reaction to, you know, how how he felt about the city of Boston. And I'm I'm not sure, you know, to what degree those feelings changed. And you know, he had great reverence for obviously you know, tremendous number of people there and his teammates and the organization. But, you know, there was some real, there was some real difficulty that he experienced, you know, and, and felt toward, you know, some, some fairly large swath of the fan base and, and the population there that I'm not sure he ever fully, you know, worked through. So. These things that he did, you know, both refusing to play in a basketball game where a couple of his teammates couldn't, eat at a local establishment and then not showing up for, um, you know, a Jersey retirement. Those are, those aren't comfortable things to do, especially for somebody who obviously finds himself in the minority and who is taking a stand um, for not only for himself, but for his people. And 
let's face it, these are not athletes that were being paid in the, the mid 60s, in the late 60s, what they're being paid today, and foregoing some of those benefits as a player, potentially pay, potentially having, you know, your employer be extremely unhappy with you. Those are real sacrifices. And um, you know, I don't think that we, we always recognize that if he had just said, Oh, I'm, 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 I'll get, I'll, I'll just play. It's no big deal. Like that would have been the far easier thing to do, but instead he did, you know, he walked the road, less traveled. He did the hard thing. And to me that, um, you know, that's like really the mark of greatness when people are willing to sacrifice on behalf of, you know, a cause. Um, I just, I think those are amazing stories. Do you have any other stories that you want to share on, on some of the, the post-career things that made uh, Russell as great as, as great as he was. Yeah, right. Post-career is interesting to think about too, because yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Um, you know, he was, uh, he was a great mentor uh, to many, you know, many players after he retired. And one that always, you know, stands out that I've heard some stories about is his relationship with Kobe Bryant. Um, which, you know, that they had a very close mentor-mentee relationship and, you know, were in touch a fair bit. And one of the things that Russell appreciated was that Kobe was a student of the game in ways that I think Russell saw some reflections of himself. And one example, I think, was Kobe had read Bill Russell's book and uh, Russell had spoken in his book about scouting his own teammates and wanting to really deeply understand their games and by doing so, learn how he could help to make them better in order to help the team be better in order to win more. And so Kobe came to Russell and, you know, wanted to talk to him about that and, you know, what was his process and his approach to, to figuring that out so that Kobe could implement it. And that was something that Russell really appreciated. And, you know, he was always a huge Kobe fan and they, they had, you know, just, just, I think, a really great relationship and saw that ultimate competitor spirit. And, and student of the game in each other in, in a way I think that was really neat. Uh, yeah, that's, that is a great story. And I think that Kobe's not the only one, you know, they're the, yeah. the, 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 the image that everybody sort of has uh, come to their mind of Russell in the last few years is when uh, Russell, I think, uh, flipped off <laughs> Charles Barkley. Um, was it Chuck? Is that who he flipped off? I think that's, that sounds right. Yeah. It's, you know, it's just, it's a playful thing, but, but, but Russell had relationships with a lot of key and important people. And I think he was a mentor for a lot of people. Um, again, I think that comes back to the being willing to sacrifice and be, be yourself uh, thing. Um, you know, as we, as we look at his, as we look at his career, we look at his post-career. The other thing that I think that, that we think of now as collectors is, you know, how do I want to think about Russell how do I, what do I want to have as a collector to represent Russell in my collection? And I know everybody has different thoughts on this. Some people, I think, some people don't want to own something of somebody after they pass away because they feel like, you know, that, that there's something strange about that. But for me, I'm a collector of the history of the game, right? And so I, I think about Russell cards um, and think about them being like important to me personally. Um, we haven't really talked about this at all, but I wonder, you know, as you look at your collection, do you have pieces in your collection that you feel like represent him in your collection well, or are there, are there cards that you would like to be able to sort of 
obtain, and especially as you've as, as you've had a chance to think about him over the course of the last few days uh, since his passing, how does how does that translate into how you think about collecting? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I I have given that some thought actually. Um, and you know one one of the things an idea that it's really helped to solidify for me is that one of the the really um, sort of neat things about collecting is that it, it well one of the ways that I collect and I I think you share this and and many do is that we like to collect um, cards you know obviously we're focused on cards primarily cards of um, you know people that we admire. Right. And yeah, and you know, and he's very clearly one of the, I mean, he's someone that I've I've collected heavily and and really enjoyed collecting. And, you know, a big part of that is because of my admiration for, you know, the things we just talked about, what what he's done on and off the court, and just one of the, you know, huge lions of of the game and of sport and of the civil rights movement, you know, and uh, his character, even just watching him interviewed, his laugh and um you know, I, another really kind of neat thing was I, I grew up a Magic Johnson fan. You can see him behind me here, but um, I, I went back at one point and watched that famous game from Magic's rookie season where he stepped in and played center when Kareem got hurt. And Bill Russell was the announcer for that game, which which was so neat, um, you know, to see him call that game and just kind of hear his personality shine through in, in an environment like that. But, you know, so it's it's. Um, someone that you kind of admire. And I feel like the collecting piece in terms of what I've been thinking about there, it, it brings you closer to that, you know? And so you talk to other collectors who collect similar things and collect similar people. And, you know, you have great discussions about someone like Bill Russell. And in the course of collecting, you become more interested in that person and what they've done. And, you know, so over, over these past few years, especially, you know, collecting some of his cards, um, it, it has, I feel like, gotten me closer to and, and a better understanding of who he was and, and what he meant and, and what he accomplished. And, you know, so I, I do a lot of vintage collecting. And so that's been my real focus is some of his, you know, his stuff from his playing days. And, um, you know, the one of the huge, you know, sort of grail cards for me was was getting his rookie card from the 1957 top set. Um, you know, I have, have that now, and it's one of the, you know, real centerpieces of, of my collection and one of my favorite cards that I have. Uh, it was, you know, from the first Topps basketball set in 1957, R really rare card. You know, I mean, I guess it's all relative, but um, rare compared to, you know, most cards of that time and mm -hmm. rare compared to every card now, if you include parallels. <laughs> um you know, I think there are about a thousand of them in the in the PSA population report. Um, uh, you know, so you think about his significance, the significance of that card, and there's only a thousand of his rookie cards. I, I consider that pretty rare. Um, so, you know, that card and then the ones from the 61 Fleer set come, you know, immediately to mind as some that I have and, and really cherish. I know in your article in BCF about his three original cards, you talked about some of the um, some of the pieces of the photography that were interesting, um, some of the technical aspects of the card that might have been interesting. 57 is the one that everybody's going to think about, right? Even though he only has three original mainstream cards, 57 is the rookie card, and it's it's the one. It's one of the, in my opinion, it's one of the, the six or seven most iconic basketball cards ever made. Other than being his rookie, 
what are two or three things about that card that really stand out to you? Sure. Yeah, well, I, I think it's pretty neat that it shows him in a, a defensive stance, guarding, guard, you know, on ball, playing some on ball defense and probably about to block someone's shot. Um, and, you know, so I, I really like that aspect. He, that's what he was known for. And he's generally considered to be the best defensive player who's ever played the game. I, I saw at one point a defensive win shares number, and he's the all-time leader in that statistic, and it's not close. I think Tim Duncan is a very distant second. Um, and you could probably put the careers of two other really good defensive players wow. in that gap between Duncan and Russell when you look at their defensive win shares. So seeing him play defense on his rookie card and you know knowing how he revolutionized the game in that way, I, I think is, is a really neat element. Um, it's also kind of interesting in that uh, the other three players that are pictured on the card are all uh, white players, you know, and we, we talk about him, you know, being a pioneer in the game and, you know, and so you see him uh, pictured as the only black man on the card and it, you know, gives you a little bit of context for, you know, who he was and, you know, how, how he fit into the, the evolution of the game. Great, great comments. When I think about the 57 tops card, um, I, I don't have as, as great a thoughts as you do because I owned it and I don't own it anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I wish that I did because, um, like I said, I think it's one of the most important basketball cards ever made. 57 tops is, as you pointed out, actually a fairly rare set. It's not like it's impossible to find, but when you compare it to other cards, even cards of the time, and you said that really well, for example, 61 Fleer, there's a whole lot more 61 Fleer than there is 57 tops, a whole lot more. Yeah. Um, not that 61 Fleer is super common or anything, but it's just, it's a lot more common than 57 tops is. Um, I owned a PSA 2 of the Russell with, that was also, a, it was a PSA DNA card. And I owned it back in, I think about 2018, maybe 20. Yeah, I think about 2018 is when I, when I owned that card. And I had it for a short time and then was saving money for something else. And so I sold it, but really like over the course of the last year, maybe the last year and a half, I thought about acquiring back another card, probably not a PSA DNA, just because a lot of those have gotten kind of expensive and decent grades. Um, not that a two was, uh, you know, a high point, but even finding a, a two or a three at this point with a, with an autograph is really expensive. Yeah. Even finding one that's not autographed is still really expensive. And so, um, you know, that's one that I would like to really add at this point. Yeah. Um, and, and honestly, like for me, that that's like, that's the big card. I would like to own a, a, a 57. I would like to own some 61s as well, just because I think it's neat, as you pointed out, that he, you know, that he only has those three original mainstream cards. But really the card that I would like to add most that I probably will never get to add is a 68 tops test card. Mm. Um, you know, that, that particular card, um, he is featured with his arm fully extended in like a defensive sort of stance, right? Like you described with the 57, except for he is, he, he is showing off sort of his wings, right? It reminds you of like, of, of what it would actually be like to be guarded by this guy. And you, you see in this image, he is not lumbering. He is not some big, heavy set center. He is a he is a dominant athlete. Yeah. You can tell just as soon as you just as soon as you look at this card. So, as far as original cards go, that's that's really like that's most of 
you know, that's most of his canon, as we call it. What other cards does he have from his playing days that people maybe don't think as much about? Sure, yeah. And just to pick up on one of your other points, I, I do really like that about the Tops test card, that sense of his athleticism that, that you can see in that card. And the other one that's like that from his playing days is his inaction 61 Fleer card, mm -hmm. where, you know, he's he's the greatest lefty of all time. And he's just kind of gliding through the air with his arm outstretched it. It almost, you know, just you see that photograph initially and you don't think it really can even be real. But he actually did that. Like you said, you know, go go watch some footage. And and he flew through the air like that. And so that, you know, you get a sense of his athleticism there as well. Um, so, you know, in terms of other playing days cards, the besides the four we've mentioned, the rookie card from 57, the portrait and the inaction from 61 and the 68 tops test, the only, you know, the only other prominent one that comes to mind for me is the 1955 All-American card. And that's a, a very small hand cut portrait card. I believe it, it was quite a large set actually and featured um, players from uh, from all different sports. Um, I think it may have had 500 people and 500 athletes mm. in the set. So really, really quite large, but, um, you know, just like the tops test card, exceedingly small population, you know, I want to, on the tops test, I think there's maybe 10 of them that have been graded by PSA. And yeah, it's, like, it's something like that. It might be a few more, it might be like yeah. 13, but it's not yeah. a big number. Right, tiny. And the All-American is a, a little more than that. I want to say it's 25 or 30 or so. So, you know, he's got the three main cards. He has these other two cards. Um, and, you know, these other two cards are virtually non-existent with a total right. pop below 50. So, you know, it's it's really the main three. The, the 55 All-American card is actually, I mean, I don't know if it's technically classified as this, but it's an XRC. You know, it's, it's from his college days. He he was at University of San Francisco in 1955 and 1956, unsurprisingly winning championships both years and um, leading the team. I think it was a 55 game win streak they had over the course of those two years. Wow. So he was he was still a collegiate at that time. You know, the 55 set, his 55 card was kind of a true rookie card after his rookie year. Um, so it's kind of interesting. You know, he has the the one kind of XRC, the rookie, the the two 61 Fleers from his prime. And then the 68 tops test, you know, sort of right toward the end of his career. And, and those are, you know, really kind of the, the, the main ones from when he played. When you break it down in that way, the way that it makes me feel is, oh, that is an incredibly small number of, of total cards for somebody, for anybody, let alone somebody. I mean, he didn't play. This isn't somebody from the teens or the 20s like we see in baseball played in the last 70 years and he only has that many cards total in existence um when you get into his post playing days that's when you you start seeing some other things um he actually has a card this just came to me he has a card um from 1975 tops where he is the coach of the supersonics mm, mm -hmm. um, and that's a team card but it does feature him Right. Um, and then actually, before I get into some of the future things, I want to I want to mention something that I think is a really interesting fact. It might be something that you and I talked about when you were putting together that piece originally. Um, the 1968 Tops test set came out and Russell's, you know, featured prominently. That set was actually probably the 67, 68 set. It's been it's become known as the 68 Tops test set. But 
but Chamberlain is, is featured as a 76er. And if that's the case, it should be 67, 68 mm-hmm. rather than 68, 69. Mm-hmm. Russell then retires, but, but retires later on. Um, and what's interesting about that is the next year, 69, 70, the, the top set did, um, did uh, rule, not rulers. Yeah. Rulers mm-hmm. like these ruler mm-hmm. poster cards. Do you know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. I do. Yeah. Kareem has yeah. one of those in that set, right? Yeah. Well, there's a card number from that set. I think it's card number 17. I might be wrong about that. Forget that part. But there's a card number that's missing from that set. Hmm. And it's believed that 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 was likely meant for Russell. Hmm. But that upon Russell's retirement, that that um, poster or that ruler, as it is, which is like a fold out, it's like twice the size of this of these already giant tall boys cards, Russell was then not included in the set. It makes me sort of like, it's one of those cards that could have been sort of things, um, you know, where you think back and you go, wow, what would it have been like if Bill Russell would have had a poster or would have had a ruler at a 69 tops test? Right. That would have been, that just would have been amazing. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. That would have been an, a neat addition to his canon for sure. Yeah. But yeah, so, you know, when you talk about the the super low pop, I mean, it, it really is remarkable with, you know, again, just looking at, at PSA populations, a little over a thousand of his rookie, and then the 261 Fleers are each, their pops a little over a thousand as well. There's probably more of those ungraded still, you know, I think yeah. the, the 57 tops, I, I think the vast majority of those probably have been graded, you know, there aren't probably too many more of those out sitting out there at this point with the value that they have. Um, but, you know, you combine the, the populations and you're at maybe 3,500 playing base cards, which is just, you know, it's unbelievable. Like you say, for someone of his stature and his recency, you know, I mean, you look at the baseball or football um, populations from, from that time, the 52 mantle is, you know, obviously a mythological card. And part of the reason for that is its scarcity, but it's PSA populations around 1,800 which is half of Russell's total population. I mean, it, you know, and, and almost double his rookie pop, you know, so it's, it's remarkable um, to, to, to think about just how few of his, his cards are out there. It makes you think, as I talked about earlier, in terms of education, how important it is um, and how, as people become more educated and as they think, oh, I really want to own an original Bill Russell card, or I want to own a rookie. It's cost prohibitive already, but it's also just extremely rare. If you go out there and you look at most of the major auction houses, you're not even going to see one a month that goes up. And, and that speaks to how rare it is. You know, moving on past his, his playing days, if you want to extend his canon, if you will, in, into those days, you really get into some really interesting, uh, in, in, a few interesting highlights. And we'll cover those real quick and then, and then talk a little bit about more modern cards for Russell. Um, and when I think about when I think about a little bit older cards, the first card that actually comes to mind isn't technically a card. It's one that another one that I used to own, and it's his Hall of Fame bookmark. His Hall of Fame bookmark is really an interesting, uh, really an interesting thing. Again, it's a card that I wish something that I wish I would have hung on to. It's very long. It's the size of a bookmark. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bookmarks are thin, and it doesn't feature anything on the back. The back is a blank back. But why this is interesting, and this is what I was one of the things I was referring to earlier with his hall of fame, something about Russell's hall of fame that we should sort of look up when we're done with this, when we're done with this episode. Um, he, he, I believe he's the first black man to be in the hall of fame. 
He is. Yeah, that's does, right. Does that ring true to you? Okay. Yes. Yeah. And I think if 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 memory serves, Russell believed that there were other people who also should have been in the Hall of Fame, and so he didn't feel okay about being named to the Hall of Fame as the first black man. I don't know if he didn't come to his induction. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that story. We'll have to look it up afterwards. What I do know is that these bookmarks were made for a span of years and every player or every person that's in the set up until Russell was, you know, was a white man. This included other people that you know of most notably like John Wooden mm -hmm. is, is in the set. Um, can't remember if Bob Cousy is in the set. Can't remember. I think that that sounds right, but, but some, some of the better known and George Mikan, for example, mm. was in the set. Russell's the first black man in the Hall of Fame. And so they make this bookmark of him. And then, and that came again after all, a lot of the other ones were made. So a bunch, bunch of them were made. And then every year they would have a few more that they would add. Well, then Russell comes in and they stop making the bookmarks. They make mm. just a few of Russell and, and then they stop making the bookmarks. It's a huge piece, and frankly, that's why it's not in my collection anymore is because I didn't like to store it, but it's such an interesting story that, you know, that they were selling these bookmarks is, you know, part of a Hall of Fame experience. You know, you come into Springfield, Massachusetts, and you see the, see the little bookmarks there, and you're like, oh, I can pick up this whole package. Oh, I can get the additions, and then the, the first Black player is, appears on one with his amazing history, and then they discontinue the set. Yeah. I just think that's a really, really interesting uh, an interesting collectible if you're a Russell collector mm. um, and then you know you you fast forward um, you know a few more years and you get to the era of uh, the early 90s when you started to see all sorts of different types of sets come out one of which was action-packed action-packed was an embossed card that was not NBA licensed but featured the very first autograph of Bill Russell now, at that time, I had heard a rumor that Bill Russell, if you ever met him, would say, I can't give you my autograph unless you'll give me $250 or some crazy rumor like this. Did you ever hear that? Or is that, is that something? I don't recall you know? hearing that. No. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I heard at the time. I can't claim yeah. whether it's true or not, but, um, but he signed a number of these action-packed cards and um, you know, they're still incredibly popular today. Uh, they sell really well. And then you know, over the next few years, he would he would appear in various subsets and, and different things. Upper Deck had him appear in, in a few different things. But then it's not really until the late 90s that you see his autograph show up really on an NBA licensed um, product. And and this is where we started to see Russell again. Saw him in the, the legend set, the century legend set, the retro set. And even though you see him in a lot of those sets, he didn't sign very many cards. These had become for a lot of collectors um, who, who, were, who were looking for rare Russell cards. They'd become really some of his most sought after. Um, I wish I could say I owned one. I don't own any of those at this point, um, but, uh, but, they're, but they're highly sought after. And, um, you know, he really, Russell continued to sign from those early, you know, from those late nineties, those early days of him signing up until, you know, even in the last couple of years, he's, he's signed. But although he signed um, a lot of different cards, none of them have ever been in really huge quantities. And, you know, in addition to those, we've also seen like he's appeared in Prism and he appeared in Topps Chrome. And so we have refractors and gold refractors and prisms and gold prisms and all of these different sort of parallels and inserts from the modern day. 
The reason that I love that these things have come out is it allows for people who are modern collectors to sort of get an idea of who Russell was. Hopefully, you know, now that now that people have had more of a chance to sort of learn about his life, what they've done is they've said, you know, it's kind of cool to look back at some of these cards that that maybe I just thought of Russell as like an old time guy, but you hear people talk about him with a reference that they have. And I just think, you know, I think Russell, I think Russell's career, his life and everything that he accomplished is, is incredibly important for the history of basketball. And it's incredibly important for the history of our hobby. And um, I'm really grateful, Nate, that you were willing to join us today for this, this conversation about really the life and the career of Bill Russell and, and a little bit about his basketball cards. Before we go, um, you know, one last question for you. As you think back, you know, looking at Russell's life and his career, if, if you had to just draw one or two um, lessons or one or two things that you'll, that you'll think about first when you think about him, um, what, would, what would you leave the, the viewers with? Sure. Well, yeah, thank, thanks for having me on, Adam. It's, you know, re really enjoy the discussion. And, you know, as, as we said at the outset, you know, kind of talking about him in, in a celebratory way and, you know, what he accomplished and, and what he's meant to, you know, to the game and, and well beyond that is, is something that, um, you know, is, is meaningful. Um, but yeah, in terms of, you know, a, a couple things that, you know, really kind of stand out, it's, um, you know, his, to me, he, he represents, you know, kind of that indomitable spirit, um, and, and the will to win and, um, and extreme principle and, and conviction, um, you know, and so just the, the power of his personality, the power of his spirit, the power of his will, and the way that he utilized all those things to effectuate winning on the court, to effectuate change in society, and to help advance the careers and the lives of the people that he came into contact with. You know, I think all that stuff is intertwined in the, the power of the person and, and the man that he was. Awesome. I, I'm grateful that, that you've been willing to, to share a little bit of your thoughts. Um, and again, just, just want to sort of agree with, with your thoughts on, how, on, his, his, um, on the way that he lived and how that impacted the world and on the way that he played and how that impacted the game. Again, Nate, uh, in Cardboard Veritas on Instagram, your perspective has been really valuable. And I uh, just want to thank you again for, for, for jumping on today. Uh, next week, uh, next Wednesday at 8 p.m. Pacific, we will drop our next issue of The Hobby. And until then, happy collecting.